Thanks for joining us. I'm Dominic Moyo, and today I'm going to sit here with Alan Gingrich, and we're going to talk and answer each other's questions about coonhounds and retrievers and kind of compare them a little bit and contrast. You're listening to the UKC Hunting Ops Podcast, celebrating hunting dog heritage, competition, and community. United Kennel Club has been the hunting dog sports home for coonhounds, beagles, retrievers, pointers, cur feist, and more for over 125 years. This podcast is fueled by Yukonuba, the official performance dog nutrition partner of UKC. Hi there, guys. I'm Dominic Moyo, and I'm the Hunt, Test, and Field Trial Program Manager here at the United Kennel Club. And I'm going to sit down today with Alan Gingrich, and we're going to talk about uh, the differences between coonhounds and retrievers. Um, Alan has quite the background in coonhounds, beagles, curfice, and my personal background is with hunting retrievers. And so there's such vastly different sports or different dogs, the way that they participate in the sports and those sports are judged. You know, we, we often have these podcast episodes where we're talking about kind of the niches, the different sports that we oversee. And we know there's people out there who are dog people. I mean, whether your, your personal preferences or your personal sports are coonhounds or beagles or retrievers or pointers, you, you like hearing about dogs, you like learning about dogs, but you know, there might be instances where we're talking about a specific thing. You're talking about your coonhound segment or your beagles and the retriever guys tune in and might not know really what we're talking about. And so the goal of this whole episode here is for us to kind of share some information back and forth between me and Alan and clue you guys in and, and talk about things kind of from a basic level to make it a little bit easier for you guys to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the different segments, even if you're not actively participating in them. So Alan, what's some of your background in, in some of those dogs that you oversee the segments of? Well, I grew up a little farm kid and we hunted for fun. You know, when, when the chores were done and, and the work was done, we had, we always had dog hunting dogs around. We had farm dogs as well, but that's kind of how I got started. You know, that was for us, Sometimes you'd only have an hour to go do something. You'd grab a beagle, maybe go on the back corner of the property and go turn it loose. And hopefully you can get on a rabbit in that time for a little while, you know, and just have, you know, I'm talking the seventies and eighties now, you know, that dates me a little bit, but that's what we did on the farm. So I grew up with them and essentially, and then after, after school and everything, I, I learned about, I knew about competitions or heard about competitions, but, uh, uh, around, I was probably in my early twenties when I entered my first competition hunt and I was hooked. Always love sports, whether it's playing baseball or what have you love sports. Uh, this is no different, you know, hunting with your dog and teaming up with a dog is also a sport. It's a competition and I loved it. I got hooked on it. Absolutely. So, yeah. So from there, uh, it got active in the Coonhound night hunts and also, uh, trialed my beagles in, in beagle trials, you know, so yeah. Well, when we talk about the different types of dogs that participate, you know, we can maybe narrow in a little bit on, on the coonhounds. What breeds of dogs can participate in those coonhound night hunts? There's we the UKC recognizes seven different breeds. So you have the the American Black and Tan coonhound, the American Leopard hound, which is the newest one that UKC registered uh, recognized. I think in two thousand 
eight or ten, something like that. So that's the newest breed, uh, the black and tan being the oldest breed from like the 1940s, actually, that they've been recognized. So then you also have the blue tick coonhound, which is a, a blue, black and tan ticked up dog. Uh, you have the English English hound, uh, coonhound. Then you also have the red bone, uh, the plot hound, and the train walker. So all of them, all of them actually originate. If you go back, you can. They say they originate from uh, George Washington's foxhounds that he brought over, hmm. all except for the plot hound. Okay. So and then I guess also probably the American leopard hound, but most of the coonhound breeds uh, come from that. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely a lot different from. You know, when you look at HRC and, and our hunting retriever segment, the breeds eligible for that, man, I could sit here for the next 15 minutes listing yeah. them all, but yeah. it's what UKC recognizes as gun dog breeds. Yeah. So yeah. you have most commonly your Labradors, your Goldens, your Boykins, Chessies, uh, flat coats, Poodles, but, you know, I got to throw them in there just being a little yeah. bit partial myself. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, there's so many, we have so many different dog sports and you know, there's a lot of, you'll see a lot of similarities. You mentioned the coon hounds, the beagles, and the current feist that I deal with. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of differences, but there's also a lot of similarities. But then when you talk about your retriever tests and things like that, there are a lot more bigger differences than that. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, here just in the last couple of weeks, I've, I've been up here for 19 years now and Todd Kellum always, uh, did all of the HRC programs and the bird dog stuff, you know, and I've always loved what a good bird dog looks like on point, man. Mm -hmm. I don't know any dog, man, that doesn't love a picture of a, there's something about a picture of a bird dog on point gets me anyways. Yeah. But just here recently, I had the opportunity to stop at the HRC grand and really, uh, it was Nicole Sedlecki from UKC here. Her and I went down to a, uh, Beagle national championship a couple of weeks ago. And we listened to your podcast with Steve Durrance. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Just yep, a couple of weeks him. ago. Man, I was, I love that podcast, listening to Steve and you guys talk about that. And, uh, and so listen to that on the way to this national championship in South Carolina. When I got there, I, I watched The Crown on YouTube there. Mm -hmm. That's, I didn't even watch any TV. I just, you know, listening to you guys talk about this and, and then watching that. And then lastly, uh, we had kind of planned on maybe on our way back from South Carolina, go to Paducah, Kentucky to HRC Grand. Mm -hmm. Nicole and I stopped in there, and I was looking forward to that. So I got all hyped up over that, and honestly, I was I loved watching those dogs work. It's it's something else. It is. They're they're it's when you watch dogs, especially at that level, it's like they're just well-oiled machines. Yeah. But you think about the whole biologic aspect of it, the the fact that they are independent enough to to make their own decisions out in the field while still operating in almost a militant fashion yeah. where it's just you know orders are given and orders are immediately followed and in that teamwork and and effort that goes in from the handler's perspective as well to set your dog up for for success yeah. and to give your dog the correct information is just you know it's unparalleled i yeah. mean we have so many amazing dog sports that that ukc uh, overseas and, and puts on and each one is special in their own right. But, you know, with me having a retriever background, that HRC grand is like me watching the Super Bowl with both of my favorite teams yeah. or something yeah. being in it. It's just, it, it's something special. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, Tracy, uh, Tracy Stubbs, uh, met up with us, met up with him there and, and he was gracious and took Nicole and I around to some of the different test sites mm -hmm. and, you know, sat in behind the judges there. And I love to have that up and close 
watch watching those dogs work like that. So I, I, I could have sat there for all week long and watched every one of them. And <laughs> the, even the, the thing that takes it a step further, too, is when you talk to the judges about why they set that test up. I would have loved to pick on their brain some, you know, how they did all that. But that's neat. You mentioned that, how they... How they set up a test site and and uh, mm-hmm. and how do they? Let's just get right into how do they how do they decide that? What goes into setting up a test site? So, when you look at setting up either training scenarios or tests as as a retriever judge or a trainer or you know an amateur working with your own dog, one of the biggest that things that comes up, the biggest aspect is talking about factors or what we would call factors. So factors are things that influence the dog's behavior in the field. So whether that be hills or like the certain types of topography you're working with, if you have a side, if you're running down the side of a hill, dogs tend to fall down hills or try to climb up hills straight at the angle. And so having a, a rolling hill might influence a dog to the right of a mark or to the left of a mark. Um, and I'll take a step back. So there's different aspects of it where you have things called marks, which is what a dog sees thrown in the field and they, they have to visualize and remember where it is. And then you have things called blinds. Now blinds are something that the dog does not actually see thrown or placed in the field It's done there without the dog knowing. And so those two aspects make up the majority of a retriever hunt test past the started level started level is just marks but you know if you're running a mark out there in the field and you have a rolling hill that dog might start to shoulder down that hill and end up on the right side of a mark which might put it down or upwind of it well now they're not able to use their nose and it's did they remember really where that bird was or did that hill rolling set them off course and now they're going to struggle to find it um and then, like I mentioned, wind. Wind's another thing. You know, how do you place this mark out there? If you're training, you might not want to put a mark directly downwind in a dog's face from the starting point or what retriever guys call the line or the mat. You don't want to put a mark where the wind's blowing right in their face because they might just use that scent the whole way to the bird. You might want to push them and challenge them and put yourself in a position where that line won't have that scent cone coming to the dog until they're right up on it. Um, other factors like uh, water, just the, the visual, or you might call it the, uh, the mental pressure of a picture of a big piece of water. So imagine there's like a 20 acre pond that you're running a test or training situation on. You might only be throwing a mark 75 yards in the water or something. But if there's that big picture of a lot of water behind it, yeah. that can be something that uh, intimidates a dog a little bit. And I and, saw some of those test sites set up like that where mm-hmm. they had some of those marks like that. And other dogs, might, they might be more comfortable going for big, big marks on water. And so if you set things up in a position like that, well, dogs might swim right past a mark depending on how it's placed because they're thinking bigger, that they want to go further. Uh, Distance is another one of those big factors. You know, are you going to set up a long mark that really challenges that dog on visual being able to see that speck of a bird going up in an arc and landing? Yeah. Or, you know, uh, conversely, are you going to put something really short that lands almost in the dog's face to where you're enticing them to to break steadiness or just mm-hmm. what we would call break, which <clears throat> is leaving before being sent? Uh, 
a lot of those things come into play. Uh, you know, other factors are where the other marks or other blinds are on the field. Uh, if you have two that are just stacked up, one behind the other, what we would call an inline, then that dog might hit that first bird, pick it up, bring it back, and you go to send it on the long one, and they get going. And they stop short about where the other one fell right. and they start hunting that area. Yeah. Well, that dog didn't push through that factor of what we would call the old fall or where that old bird was. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, those are the stuff that those judges or trainers are taking into consideration when they're setting up something to run those retrievers on. And all these little tiny details can affect how a dog runs and really challenge them. Hey, does this dog have the, the experience or the training behind them to understand, I just picked up that short bird, now I need to go pick up that long bird. Or is that dog going to be able to take that, that angle, that hill that exists in this field and shoulder into it so it's running at an angle where it's not falling down it, it's not going climbing up it, it's taking a, a straight angle or a direct path from that line to that bird. Mm -hmm. And so each, each test site is going to be a little bit different. Each of those judges have their own poetic justice for where they put birds, but there's a reason behind every single one of them because they're looking for something specific on what the dog's going to do. And so you can, they can actually set it up to where it might be a lot more difficult. The test could be a lot more difficult just based on a lot of or some of the things that you mentioned there. Absolutely. You yeah. can take the <clears throat> same piece of property or a same piece of, of a field and set up a starter test or a grand test. Yeah, a good judge can yeah. can look at that and say, "Here's how we're going to do it for a beginner dog that just came out of some of the the elementary processes yeah. and retriever training, and we'll make it, you know, challenging enough for them, and can take that same property and say, we're going to test the most advanced retrievers on the same piece." So a lot of the tests are held over multiple days, right? So with retrievers. Um, or when we talk about HRC, so HRC on a weekend test, each day is its own test. So you have a Saturday test and then your Sunday test. So that'd be like two different trials or two different Correct. tests, two different events. Correct. So, so you, you, men you mentioned wind when you set up a test. How does that, you know, you might have wind changes from day to day. How do they deal with that, if anything? Well, typically those test sites aren't going to be the same on Saturday as they are Sunday. Okay. So, so I, they would change them up then. Mm -hmm. So it might be the same property. Usually mm -hmm. they'll change the feet, like go to a different field, maybe a little bit further away, or they'll flip the field around so the dog's not running from the same or similar spot that they did the day before. But like if I'm going to go run my poodles on a hunt test on Saturday, it's going to be, you know, depending if you're what level you're running at, you have a land and a water series for the most part is, is how it's generally set up. And whatever aspects comprise those two, that's one test is Saturday. And then, you know, you come back on Sunday and you're going to have a completely different field set up and a completely different water set up. Mm -hmm. And that's generally your weekend test for HRC. Now, when you get to the level of the grand, the grand's looking to test dogs to it an extreme extent and consistency matters and it's over five days you got your five series of the grand yeah um and that's that's an that's an extreme test from what i could tell that's you know not only do you have to pass every day every series you have to pass all five tests yep in order to get your pass at the grand 
and you know markdowns on one test are going to haunt you for the rest of of the period that yeah. you're there at the grand because you know if you get a markdown on one series you know you've you you can't afford but maybe one more depending <clears throat> on what what it is and still pass the five series yeah so they were talking about there that you can have in the like in the hrc test there and they're talking about the fall grand here that you could have one bobble or you get one mulligan as that what what is that like a dog makes a mistake or what 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 would that look like or what could that be that, where it, it might be on a blind retrieve or a mark might be a marked retrieve where they have to tell the, the handler to handle his dog or mark the bird for him or I forget what term they used. Handle. Handle it, it would dog. be the yeah. term. So handles. Put the you, dog on the bird, I mm -hmm. think is what they Yep, that's, yeah. that's what the judge will tell you. And those, those are some of the scariest words a handler so, can hear. So when that's like a fault right there. That's a yeah. bobble right there. Yep. And so it, when you talk about HRC, they're looking at some, they're judging on different aspects. You mm -hmm. have. Well, hey, before we get to all that, let's be, not to confuse our viewers, because hopefully we'll have a lot of the, of the Kunal and Beagle guys listening into some of this that might be interested in how it works. Let's let's get to the basics of uh, of what at that test looks like. What do the hunter comes up to the up to the to the stage with his dog, and what what are, what is he going to do here? He's going to mark three birds, right? At the finish level, yeah. or at the grand level, well, and uh, just kind of paint the picture what that looks like. You're you're going to bring your dog up to the site. It's your turn to go. What are you doing here? So depending on the level you're running at, okay. you know, at started, you're going to see what we would call singles. Those okay. are birds that are thrown independently, and you'll see two of them. And you have you have somebody out in the field that's set up that the dog can't see them. They're throwing the bird. Correct. And so for started, it's just two single marks. Okay. So you'll have two of those stations out in the field, yeah. and either it'll be wingers or hand-thrown. Wingers are just like giant slingshots exactly. that'll throw a bird. Uh, and... With started, since there are singles, one bird will be thrown. You send your dog. They pick that bird up, come up, and do the other one. Actually, the handler's going to sit there with his dog, and his dog's wide. And actually, the handler has a gun and shoots at those when they fling the birds, right? For for the advanced levels, and at started, a handler can. However, oh, but doesn't have to. But doesn't have to because yeah. in started, a handler's given the option to hold the dog's collar. Okay. So that's another aspect that they're looking to judge on is steadiness. So in started, a dog is not is expected to be steady however you may hold the dog's collar so if you hold the dog's collar you can't safely operate the shotgun okay and so you don't sense. shoot they'll right. have a designated person you know, within 10 you. feet yeah. from you and they'll be your shooter and um, it really simulates an actual duck hunt it does yeah. and, and that's the whole intent and original goal behind what hrc hunt tests are it was you know the the guys that had these retrievers that wanted to test them against a standard not just against each other yeah to figure out you know where is your dog in training where are your dog's weaknesses yeah. and so and started like i said there's there's just marks a dog's not expected to run any sort of blinds or be able to handle yeah on on anything and started yeah so what i saw if i can dumb it down even just a little bit from my perspective you know the handler comes up to the Comes up, what do you call that? To post or what do you the call line. It? the line up to the line? And he's sitting there with his dog. He's got his dog off leash, no collar, no anything on the dog at this point. Matter mm -hmm. of fact, they have the they have to have the dog 
Uh, let me back up even further here. <laughs> I really love this, and I had some other questions too, but I'm going to ask some of them here that I didn't get the chance to while the competition Absolutely. was going on. So even before they come up to line, there's like two or three stations behind them mm -hmm. that where the dog is sitting behind in a, in a like in a blind. Mm -hmm. What is that about? Just so the dog cannot see anything that's happening in front of them on the actual field of play, right? Correct. So it's the like dog a holding blind. That's exactly what okay. they're called, and. Um, the, those are put there so that the dog's not able to see the field before they run. Okay. So that marking aspect of it, the yeah. the memory to to know where a bird is, watch yeah. where it lands. Yep. They their only op or opportunity to see them. Yeah. Is when they are on the line. Yeah. That way, if they're staging behind where other people are running from, a dog could potentially see the same mark thrown a few times and kind of commit that to memory a little oh, bit yeah. better. Yeah. And so it's a way of isolating that dog sure. a little bit in staging before sense. they actually yeah. get the opportunity. So to now run. they come up to the line, what I see there. So the handler sits there and he's got a duck call. He's going to blow on his duck call a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then they release the birds out there on mark number one. Mm -hmm. And he shoots over in that direction. I don't know if he actually shoots the bird. I heard one handler say, I got him right in the head. <laughs> <laughs> I got him. <laughs> yep. uh, and then it uh, goes to the, the swings one way or the other, gets to bird or marker number two, mm -hmm. shoots at that one and then number three and then after that third shot is when they release the dog and i'd see i'd and that, now that dog can go to any one of those three marks right correct so they usually they go for the last one yes okay. so typically there's no designated order that a dog has to pick those birds up yep. so long as it picks all the marks up uh the dog is generally sent on their name that's kind of their yeah, release i heard that yep. uh and the the idea is, like we mentioned with steadiness, that dog shouldn't creep, it shouldn't inch up, it shouldn't leave that, that line until they're sent. Right. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned, the handler is shooting their poppers. They're not truly blanks. It's just the, uh, the yeah. primer load yeah. on, the, right. on those shells. And, you know, from 30,000 foot up, you're like, okay, yeah, that person yeah. is just aiming their gun at these marks. Right. But if you listen closely, you'll even hear some handlers giving their dog verbal cues, depending on how you're turning. Oh. So, you know, and, and the program you use. So there's some handlers that do things a little bit differently. But like for me, for example, if I'm turning to the right, if I'm pivoting to the right to follow the order of those birds being yeah, thrown. That dog's pivoting might, right with you. They should pivot with you. They should mark off of the gun. But I can also say if I turn a little bit and that dog's still looking at that previous mark, I might say here, and that here is to pull them towards me. Yeah. Or if it's the reverse order and I'm pivoting to my left and that dog's still looking off to the right, I might say heel. And that's a cue between for my dog and my training. Here is to pull them to the right. Heel is to back them up or turn them to the left. Yeah. So, so next question, most everything I saw, I think, was from left to right. Is that always the case or is that tradition or, or is that, can they set it up from any right to left or in any order? Or what? They, they may throw the birds in any order. Okay. And there might be a reason that judges are doing that. Is the handler going to know what order that's going to be when he comes up to the line? Yes. So okay, they'll they have will. a handler meeting bef that's right. before, yep, yep. before the test is run yep. and the judges will go over here. Here's how yep. all the birds are going. Yep. Um, you know, it might, like we talked about those stations out in the field yeah. that are actually throwing them, it might be throwing the bird from the winger out to the left if you're standing at the yeah. line, or they might be thrown to the right, yeah. or they might be angling it just a little bit. So the bird's going slightly away or slightly towards the yeah. dog. Uh, so now we've thrown three birds and the, 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 we've sent our dog at the, at the last mark there. 
Mm-hmm. And he's going, now nah, me as a handler, I can't, I'm not, uh, I'm not handling the dog at all until the dog has the bird in mouth and then a couple of whistles to return basically. Mm-hmm. And then the dog comes back, needs to return the bird to hand. And then from there is he lines the dog up again and, he, and it's like they try to line them up close yep. to where the, right in line with the, the next mark that mm-hmm. has happened, you know, at this point now, it might've been a minute or two or more mm-hmm. ago that the dog has to remember. Yep. That's pretty amazing how a dog can remember that. They get them lined up, you know, and then they, they, they're watching that. I thought that was so cool. And then they send the dog again and again without being handled. Mm-hmm. No, no verbal commands, but that's where that bobble thing we talked about. If they tell them, the judges tell you to put your dog on the bird, that means the dog is getting off course what have you, right? Yeah, it means the dog has shown that it did not properly mark that bird or visualize where that bird was when it was sitting at the line initially. Yeah. Um, and so that marking aspect of the test, that's that's one of those key points that judges are looking at is marking. Yeah. How well did the dog mark that bird? Well, you know, you know I'm going to, you know, one of the things we talk about coon hounds, you know, so when we turn, uh, the big difference is, you know, you're hunting with a dog, you've got a mark, you know, right where that mark is as a handler. If I'm out coon hunting, I don't know where the raccoon is. I'm going to turn my dog into a 50-acre patch of woods or uh, it might be 2,000-acre river bottom somewhere. I don't know. But here's what I can tell you that I know from coon hunting. If you hunt the same dog long enough in a lot of the same areas, they tend to go and strike a track in that same area. So it's probably a a little bit like that. They, They learn to know where those areas are. They really do. Yeah, it just, you know, just kind of like a marking a in this case marking a bird, knowing where it fell. A dog, even though it might be a week later or whatever, uh, he remembers where to go, where yeah. he found that last track. Going to go see if he can find another one there. There's there's actually a whole process in retriever training called pattern blinds, mm-hmm. and so pattern blinds are the same thing. It's not necessarily marks, but when you're running a blind, maybe you run that same blind a couple days in a row because you're trying to teach a specific concept or you're mm-hmm. trying to, to teach the dog how to run blinds to begin with, mm-hmm. you put everything in the same spot each time. That way they understand, hey, if I line you up here, I tell you dead bird, and then I tell you back, you have an idea of where you're going. You yeah. know to leave yeah. me and carry a straight line out there and you will find a bird. Yeah. Uh, so, but, what, so what I witnessed there, what I'm, what I'm seeing as a, uh, as a novice here, I guess, so to speak, so we sent the, the dog went, got the first bird, go to the second one. And now he comes back and they got to go after the third one. Mm-hmm. But on his way back from the third one is where, what you, is what they call a, a diversion, is it? Or mm-hmm. a bulldog maybe? Diversion. Diversion. Okay. Yep. So that is when the dog is returning, reach or returning with the, with the bird in, in mouth, mm-hmm. he is not at the handler yet. Now the handler gets up and shoots at another bird that is in the air now at this time, drops down, not far from the from the line mm-hmm. and the idea that is also that dog needs to come uh, re- bring his dog back to or his bird back to the handler before he goes after this other dog that might or this other bird that might be very close by yep so uh that diversion is is testing a, a control to an extent okay. that's another aspect judges are looking at but that's yeah you know control is really exemplified by running blinds but we'll get to that but that diversion you don't want your dog to do what's called switch so if you when you were at the grand, you might have noticed that diversion bird had a little orange ribbon yeah, tied it to it. Yeah. And that's so if something crazy happens and it's taller grass and that dog 
switches that bird but right on the same bird and oh, they yeah. bring it back and it yeah. has an orange ribbon you know that dog switch yeah yep. but the idea is that dog should have that discipline to say let me finish this task yeah. with this bird already in mm -hmm. my mouth bring it back to you and now we'll go get this yep. other one so now he's got this diversion bird i guess whatever you call that but now there's one other test still actually two more tests that i saw here one was now it's going after the blind mark what is a blind mark so a blind retrieve is or a blind a, retrieve. Uh, a blind retrieve is is a bird that a dog did not see thrown or placed out there. And so when you talk about marking, it's it's independent. That dog ha should ideally remember where all these birds were on its own when scent go proceed directly to it. Which is pretty it. amazing if you think about it. It, it's, <laughs> it is. And For that, a dog to remember all those marks. Yeah, and even in a flat field, it can it can mess with the dog. And then yeah. we talk, go back to like adding factors, like we were talking about. Even I'm trying to remember where all these birds landed. Yeah, you know? it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> but that blind is something that the dog doesn't know where it's at. So that independence that we allowed the dog to leave our side and go on its own to get the bird without any assistance from us. Now that's set aside, and with a blind, it's all control. It's about the teamwork and that decision-making by you, not by the dog. The dog should almost not be thinking for itself and just be looking to you for the information because you said, listen, you don't know where this bird is. I do. And so I'm going to get you to this bird as quickly as, well, in ideally as few whistles as possible. Is, is there, that was going to be my next question. Is there, is there a maximum number of whistles to, to where it would be a, become a fault? So there's or, not or, or a, a maximum. time or a time. There's not a maximum of whistles or time. Because most of these, the ones that I saw were probably a hundred plus yards. I'd say probably hundred to hundred and thirty yards, maybe. Absolutely, at the grand, they'll they'll push those distances. Some. Yeah. But so that's pretty typical for that blind retrieve to be that far out. And at that level, okay. And and okay. each subsequent level below it, there's there's a maximum distance okay. to run those blinds on, Good. and it'll be shorter for each each sure. uh, rigger below that, but. When um, when you're talking about time or number of whistles, there's not a, a limit on what you got to do. But even though there's not a maximum of time or or number of whistles blown, the the huge caveat off of that is the dog has to be taking every cast. It has to be listening to every whistle and working with the handler. So sometimes judges in that handler meeting we're talking about, they might say, I don't care if you blow a million whistles. If that dog listens to what you're doing and it works with you the whole way down, yeah. then you're fine. Yeah, because really what the handler is doing, for those of you that don't know, have never seen one, the handler is actually giving hand signals yeah. of which way for the dog to go. When he blows his whistle, the dog's going to stop wherever it is, turns around, looks at the handler. Mm -hmm. That's pretty neat. And yeah. sometimes they're out there a ways. I'm thinking, man, how can they see that? Yep. You know, but then the handler is trying to get the dog to go left or right or straight back. Can they, when they do, they give these hand signals. Can they also give verbal commands they can. at the same time? There's they, uh, that. That's up to the handler. Then. Yep. Yeah, okay. it is, and it, it also depends on the situation too, and the dog's training. Because if if I give, and, and when we talk about those hand signals, imagine like the Vitruvian Man, that that picture of a guy in a single plane, and their arms are are stretched out. You know at an angle down or straight out or at an angle to the angled up or even just straight up in the air like you're asking a question. Yeah. Each one of those things means something different to that dog and the angle you're putting your hand up should on a disciplined and trained dog tell them the angle to take that. Yeah. 
that direction. And a handler may go, all right, I know I'm in a dangerous spot where there was an old mark and I really want that dog to turn around and dig straight back. Well, giving a silent hand up cast might not carry the same weight as a hand up with a verbal back. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Um, same thing for that. an over. Yeah. But those verbal cues, those are generally the only two verbal cues you're, you have while running yeah. lines is either back or over. Yeah. Um, and those are kind of the two extreme casts you'd make. Either turn around and dig straight back from where you're at. And it, it's either you turn around to your right if, or, well, this dog's facing you. So if I put my right hand straight up in the air and I say back, that dog's going to turn to its left, to my right, oh. and dig straight back. Or sure. vice versa, if I do the yeah. other hand, that dog is differentiating between what side of your yeah. body you're getting yeah. these casts from and taking these these super fine adjustments based off of what you're doing. and the idea is that you take that time when you're sitting at the line to get your dog to where its tail, spine, neck, nose is all faced and facing a perfectly straight line that if you draw an imaginary line from where that bird is to that dog's nose, it's all pointed and aligned in it. I, I noticed that the handlers were doing that. You know, that's something that I would have never known or realized, but I, I saw that they were doing that. A lot of them had, you know, right off the end of their nose, you know, lining it. It was just amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people will tell you an ideal blind is a blind you don't have to give any cast for because that means you you lined your dog up perfectly at the line and they carried that perfectly straight line to the bird. Now, those factors we talk about are going to slightly influence things. So that's where casting comes into play. So each one of those whistles should be a crisp sit. That dog should be responding yeah. immediately to all whistle and verbal cues. and Every single cast you give, if I put my right arm straight up for that dog to turn to my right and yeah. go back, and it turns to its left, that's a cast refuse. Mm. That that minute difference is what they're looking at when they're judging the control on that okay. blind. Sure. How well that dog takes the, the information you give it and the yeah. direction you give it based off of you know what you gave. Yeah. So if I, if I ask it to go to the right and it turns around and goes left or even right back, it didn't do what I asked it to do. So here's the uh, next question for you. So, so we've sent the dog off here, or line, we're lining the dog up. Now the dog has a, uh, it should have it mem- in its memory where this mark was at, right? For marks. For marks. Mm-hmm. Okay, but now I'm also lining the dog up. What if wind, let's say we have a right to left wind direction. Am I going to, how does it work here? If I'm going to, as a handler, am I going to line this dog up right right in line with this mark or am I going to, because of the wind direction, maybe am I going to, let's say for right to left wind, am I going to try to get my dog off to the right of that a little bit? So he's always going to be in the wind when he gets there, he should be able to smell it. Right. Yeah. So it's close enough that those is, are, or, or how do those two things work? The mark, the memory of the mark versus where the handler is trying to send me that might be off a little bit. That, or is that even a thing? So ideally, that dog should know where everything is, right? Yeah. But that influence that a handler has at the line to kick the dog off in a general direction can be a useful tool to a handler. A handler might know, hey, we got a really gusty wind or we got this hill here. I know my dog tends to fall down those, what you call them, falling okay. down the hill when they succumb to that, that factor. Or I know my dog wants to dig up that hill. That's its natural tendency. Or you got a piece of water and you know, hey, my dog 
it can be what we might call cheaty, where it wants to to take a more shore angled uh, entry into water, or they want to look to get out early on on the land. You might line your dog up a little bit wider or a little fatter on that to give your dog more information or influence your dog a little bit on hey take a wider mm. angle here don't don't succumb to that factor and knowing your dog's tendencies that might negate what they naturally do out there when they go to be independent mm-hmm. that offsets what you know they're going to do mm-hmm. so i might line my dog up so that like you said you're to the to the right of a, a bird just slightly because you know that they're going to self-correct a little bit on the sure. way there yeah that makes sense i figured there was probably some some things like that and and you know when you're talking about different marks if you got two marks that are kind of close together and you really want to get you know this bird out of the way because you know there's a blind coming up that's yeah. near that bird and you yeah. want that one picked up first and drain it from its memory yeah. picking up the other two marks yeah. you might influence that dog to get that sure. mark first See, there's a lot of handling that comes into it here obviously with with these hunt tests it's the same thing in our night hunts and our beagle trials a handler who calls his dog you know but there's uh there's you know reasons why you call the dog like this or don't call the dog you know so there there's it's so different but there's a a big handler handler is a, has a big part in it sure. yeah there, there's a good bit of strategy yeah. in it strategies yep that's it but yeah the Inter- that's interesting stuff man it's uh uh when you when you uh, mentioned uh having this conversation about just kind of digging into it a little bit and and i think i'm probably good for it not knowing a whole lot about it you know to ask some questions like this and some of these already kind of know the answers to but but still there's a lot of them that i don't you know that uh, and there's a lot of nuance to it yeah you you can watch a couple of hunt tests and miss some little tiny um uh, aspects some little of those fine details you know even the the for the volume or the cadence that a handler gives that dog its name to leave for a mark can clue that dog in more if i'm I'm a little bit louder maybe i'm trying to push my dog out or if i'm dragging their name out just a little bit might be pushing them a little bit more yeah. or if it's a little bit softer yeah. it might be yeah. you know all of it it just plays in yeah i don't know if we're gonna bounce back and forth here a little bit but i i have more i've made some notes here i have even more questions <laughs> <laughs> that's how most things in the dog world are right yeah. the more you try to learn the more yeah. you realize you don't know well i'm just you know i've i've always been infatuated with anything any dog that does what it's bred to do. I remember before I, one of the things I had to do before I took the job at United Kennel Club, I had to write an article and I wrote an article about our farm dog. It was a working cattle dog that I helped train. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think is because I was involved in the training of it. And this happened when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old. Wow. You know, so I think just being a part of that training of this dog is also what made me appreciate what it became. Mm-hmm. eventually you know but it took quite a bit you know and it would first it had to have its natural instincts to want to herd in this case but so it, uh, i say this it doesn't really matter whether it's a herding dog a a coon hound or a beagle or in this case a retriever even you know uh, and and honestly if you don't if you've never watched retrievers really working and and working well mm-hmm. i don't think you can appreciate what a retriever can do Oh, if yeah. you don't know, it's just a lab that is a lot of them are probably somebody's house dog that if you don't know, don't watch them work, mm-hmm. they're just kind of a, a kind of a, a house dog, I guess, so to speak, for the lack of a better term, not to, you know. Yeah. But when you watch them work, man, that gets yeah a lot of respect for that. That's that's not, 
the things that they train him for, you know, I think we train takes a lot of training for uh, beagles and coonhounds and and uh, but training a retriever is, I can see it's like, there's a lot of work that goes into that. There there is and a lot of work. If you don't know, you don't you can't appreciate how much work actually goes into it, and probably more so than we do. One of the differences is as a whole lot more one-on-one training with the, with the individual or with a person versus, uh, in, in coon hunting or beagles, it's a whole lot of number one is exposing mm-hmm. the dog, you know? Mm-hmm. And after you cast the dog, it's out there looking for its track and you hope it's natural instincts kick in and, and such, you know, and, and it finds a track and this and that we're not guiding them, so to speak. Now, in beagle hunting, you will walk the dogs. You want a dog to handle a little bit to where you can kind of walk them in a general direction. And and even in coon hunting, some of the some of the guys will what we call walk hunt, you know. But for the most part, I'm going to flip my dog loose from the tailgate, and I'm going to sit on my tailgate, and I'm not going to go to him until he trees. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how that works. Yeah, it's a there's so many small small aspects mm-hmm. to retriever training mm-hmm. where we break things into these fundamental pieces, and mm-hmm. it just it's kind of the old saying, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Yeah. And yeah. that's what we do with these retrievers. And Well, that that begs this, you know, so much training. It has to be a lot of training. First, they have to have the instinct. Mm-hmm. And we see that here at the UKC office. We have a courtyard out here where employees can bring their dogs. Mm-hmm. And we've had dogs here that were retrievers, uh, you know, or a couple bird dogs we've had here. Uh, some others, you know, I've brought little puppies in, you know, I have a little mm-hmm. chili. She's a little feist squirrel dog, you know, and, and it's for me watching those dogs out in the courtyard, you can watch their natural instincts. You know, if, uh, a retriever wants to throw stuff around, they just naturally want to go and grab it. Mm-hmm. I could throw something out there for chili and she's probably, but she's going to jump at a butterfly before she's going to pick up a, a bone that I threw out there in the yard. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. That, that prey drive yeah. versus retrieve yeah. drive. Yeah. 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 Each one's kind of pretty cool to see that yeah that so you got to have that natural instinct in a dog first but then then it's just getting it out of them doesn't matter if it's a coonhound beagle retriever what have you but yeah it's pretty impressive what dogs can do you start with that big block of marble right and you slowly yeah. chip away and at the end of it you have so this what, sculpture so that what at what age would somebody start training a retriever and then secondly are they like coonhounds and beagles where you have those that are just great and awesome and others that are just don't make it yeah so you know that's one of the most popular questions you know if you you find yourself on a retriever forum on facebook Mm -hmm. people are like well i just picked up my puppy at what age do i start training them and the the golden answer is the day you get them right so there's little things probably younger than we would a coonhound or a beagle really from what i from what i know so with retrievers, it's it's day one. I mean, you can start with a balled-up sock in a hallway, like mm-hmm. little tiny things, like yeah. throw it a couple times for them. And just that that little so repetition. So it's at a very, very young age. Yeah, you, you, you lay that foundation early on. Yeah. Now, there's certain aspects of retriever training, like the force-fetch process or running blinds or things like that that, that wait a little bit. Maybe, maybe a dog's the general rule of thumb for force fetch is you want to wait for them to have all of their adult teeth in. So somewhere around six months old, but you know, maturity also comes into play where if that dog shows that it's just not mentally mature enough to retain this information or understand, you know, the adversity or the different pressures that go into it, maybe you might wait a little bit, but as far as like laying that foundation and honing that drive and building 
all of that drive into the dog to want to go pick up a bird when the water's frozen and it's, you know, zero degrees or below with wind chill. And Mm -hmm. that starts as that like eight week old puppy with Mm -hmm. a sock in a hallway. Yeah. And then, you know, you build on to that. Maybe you bring out live birds, you bring out a quail or a clipped wing uh, Mm -hmm. pigeon or even a, a shackled duck, just little things like that to, to really build on that drive because the more drive you have in, in a young dog, the more you have to work with later on, the more want to they have to take on these difficult scenarios that we put them in and rise to the challenge. Yeah. So it, you know, it starts young for them, but everything else just falls into place afterwards. Yeah. So, Hey, you mentioned force, uh, force fetching. Mm -hmm. What is force fetching? I hear that term quite a bit. So force fetch, um, another term for it, which might kind of paint the picture a little bit better, is conditioned retrieve. So it's a process where we um, essentially lay the foundation for pick this up and hold it in your mouth until I take it from you. That's what builds on the the whole retrieve to hand. The dog's not you know picking a bird up and dropping it every five foot and then drop it at your foot. You want them to bring it from where it lands right back to your hand and you take it from them. That's the the general concept that's taught during that condition retrieve is you have to go out here and get this and bring it back. So that's where the want, you want to build the want to before you get to the have to. And then that whole condition retrieve also conditions them to understand different things like collar pressure later on when you, when you're teaching um, a dog to run blinds or you're teaching a dog to take your cast. There's different types of pressures that come in mental pressures, collar pressure, and that lays the foundation for all of that. So that force fetch teaches the dog how to work and respond to different pressure cues from the, the handler. So a trainer, a dog in training, most dogs, retrievers are going to be trained with tools, training tools. Yes. Most of them. So it's, is it hard to retrain it or train a tr- retriever without any of those tools? What would they have done 60 years ago? Man, there's... How did the duck hunter, old duck hunters do it? There, there's a lot of different things out there that talk about the different processes. I mean, no, at one point there weren't these, these nice pieces of technology that we have now, um, which people would argue you couldn't reach the caliber of dog necessarily that we have now with these tools. Um, but some of those processes back then were a little bit. I would say just bit... from what I know, training coonhounds and beagles, uh, that's true. Yeah, it's and so it it's hard to talk about dogs that were trained back then and you know there's some things within the the history of retriever training that might be a little bit of a black eye on yeah. the sport um with people just doing doing things that they didn't know better back then mm-hmm. with with these dogs to get the the outcome that they're hoping for. But um yeah, so Generally now, tools are a major part of training a, a dog to upper level hunt tests. Now, can you get there without it? Can you? Yes. Um, there are different programs out there that don't utilize different training tools like e-collars. Um, but some people would tell you that, that the, the dog that comes out of that is is different from a dog that was trained in it um, in different ways. So there's no right or wrong training process as long as you see it all the way through, but they do 
kind of yield some different results and they come with their own set of challenges. I gotcha. Yeah. So uh, we, we're talking about handlers here too. So I know in HRC, they talk a lot more about pro handlers than they do in my field. Yeah, we have some pro handlers, what we consider pro handlers, but those are different. I think most pro handlers, that's in HRC or in those events, retriever trials, that's all that they do, is it not? They That's their job. They have their dogs that they're, they're not their own dogs. Most mm-hmm. of them, right? They're all their clients' dogs. Mm-hmm. How... Uh, Talk about a pro trainer versus an amateur, and do both of those compete together? They do so at the same test with with and, HRC. It's it's judged to a standard, right? So there's so, so it's not much. It's not like a necessarily a you're not competing against. You're a pro. I'm an amateur. We're not really competing. It's a pass or fail type thing. Correct. So there's it's no no personal competition in there. It's no dog against dog. It's did this dog do the work? Yes or no? Yeah. Um. So you know everyone walks away with the ribbons that they earn but as far as pros and amateurs they you know they'll in, intermix while they're running there's no so yeah. i could have my own retriever that is trained half decent that i could take to a test and i could handle it myself no problem absolutely and i don't i don't need to put myself down as an amateur or pro handler that means nothing no it, it's insignificant to um to HRC test. Now, the only place it comes in is from a logistics standpoint on, yeah. hey, we know this guy's a pro, so he's got a yeah. dog in different stakes. Maybe we need to put him earlier in the, the running order. For so how do, do you see dogs? Uh, how long does a, tr- a, a pro trainer, how long does he keep that dog? Is he Does he start it from a young dog and have it all the way up through its whole trial career? Or how, how does what does that look like? Or do they, do they get... Uh, pass back to the owners or do they pass from, from trainer to trainer or pro handler to pro handler? Uh, How does that work? So typically what, what you'd see is say, I'm, I'm just a duck hunter, yep. right? And I want my dog trained to pick up my birds. Well, I'll set my goal. So you would, you know, if I say, I want to send my dog off to a pro, you'd say, Hey, I want my dog to be able to run blinds and pick up marks. And it's just going to be a hunting dog. It's not going to do trials. Well, that's going to have a slightly different timeline. And generally, you'd see around that six-month mark is where you'd start to send a dog off. Mm-hmm. Uh, some some trainers offer different programs that, hey, we'll take your eight-week-old puppy. It'll come to us for some Head Start stuff where, you know, it's like we were talking about. It's their way of doing the sock down the hallway to ensure the dog lays a good mm-hmm. foundation. And then, all right, the dog's about 16 weeks old, that, that big phase of, of neurological development and, and that boom where I can make a lot of progress in a short span of time is starting to close. Take your four month old dog back, love on it, let it develop a relationship with you. And then at six, eight months, I'll take it back. Yeah. Um, as far as timeline for training, again, it depends on what you want. If you want a, a finished level dog or a hunting retriever champion level dog, then it could be, you know, a year or more to get to that point. So what would you say is the most common that you see the most, we see the most common as in UKC HR dogs that are in HRC tests are most of them dogs that did go to a professional trainer or had some professional training, or is there a good number of them that just have amateur trainers, you know, it's and handlers that that whole program was aimed at the hunting guy, just the, the weekend warrior that they train their own dog. Yeah. So you still see a really good number of, of amateurs making up these events um but it just depends on locale and and and, you know what rigor you're running in but i'd i'd say you know a good 
50-ish percent is the amateur at a hunt test, and another 50 is, yeah. is the pros bringing client dogs. Well, at the HRC Grand, I saw everything from a truck with a with a two-hole dog box on the back to gooseneck duallys, you know, with yep. 30 or more dogs on their trailer. That's just amazing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, there's still hunt tests that you go to, especially if you go to the starter level. You got dogs that are just riding in the yeah. passenger seat. I mean, hey, one other thing you know that I noticed there a little bit's more of a pass, uh, a pass and fail thing versus a comp versus competing against each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for just for that, because of that alone, it seems like everybody's kind of what I saw. A lot of people were kind of rooting for each other, you know, for yeah. their dog to do well. Yeah, and that's something in the podcast with Stephen Durrance that that he talked about is it's everyone wants to see everyone succeed yeah. it's it you want to see that person find their success and get their ribbon at the end of the day just as bad as yeah. you want to get your own yeah so it's it's there's a lot of camaraderie a lot of friendship a lot of relationships are built i, through I could tell hunters. that you know me being new not knowing anybody really they were friendly oh yeah know, yeah hey the other thing i wanted to ask you so everybody is wearing camo <laughs> that's part of the judges uh everybody Everybody is wearing camo from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, it goes back to the roots of hunt tests. The the HRC program was for the duck hunter, right? So we're emulating a duck hunt. Well, I'm not going to go hunt ducks wearing bright white. I'm going to be dressed up in camo, and that might you know that adds a certain level of rigor for the dog. Where if you're running that blind, that dog has to be able to look to you and really distinguish you when you're giving that cast yeah. versus you just out there and bright white dogs, like it's, an, you know, you're, you're a poster board out there and everything's obvious. So it, it goes back to simulating a duck hunt as closely as possible. And that's mm. why you have a live firearm shooting a primer load. That's why you have these, these um, recently dispatched birds. That's why you're using birds over bumpers or, or anything like that. And it's just to get as close to that hunting scenario as possible. Again, even with the duck call, the duck call to signal the start yeah. of the test yeah. is just like me sitting there and seeing birds flying overhead and, yeah. and uh, calling at them a little bit. Yeah. Another thing that you mentioned I wanted to, to talk about a little bit is uh, handlers getting at a new test site or um, they, they always have a handler meeting. What do you call that meeting? Handler meeting. Handler meeting. Okay, so you have all your handlers what is a tr- what is a what is a general number of dogs that are going to go through this test at this site in a day? So there's limits that are set by okay. HRC. Um, trying to remember offhand, I want to say it's uh, oh man, put you on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, quiz me real quick. So well, hey, that's not that's not all that important, I guess. But the one thing that so the judges are going over the the test with. What they're going to be looking at, you mentioned, you know, the, the, how the bird's going to fall, where it's going to fall, and they they uh, they have those, they fling those birds, mm-hmm. and then they can see where they're going to land. In general, all of them are going to basically throw it in the same same general area, very close. Yep. So they watch how that falls, and they do all that. And then they actually have, they also bring up a test dog. Yes. So a test dog, and what is that test dog? Is that a dog that who brings the test dog? Is it any? Is that just a dog they pull from anywhere, or what? Is, where does that dog come from? So the idea behind a test dog is um, it's a dog that has not titled in the level that they're running at okay. to make it fair for you know the person okay. running that level for the first okay. time. So if we're going to start it, then that dog can't have 
So this dog title. is not necessarily going to be better than any of the dogs that are going to be Correct. at this at so this test. The the whole goal behind at this that site test dog is to show is this test fair for this class of dogs? That's that's the first okay. goal. And the second one is for handlers to visualize, watch another dog run this course and get an idea. Maybe they didn't catch this factor over here or they didn't uh, at first notice that there's a decoy in this one spot and that sucked the dog a little bit in this direction. Yeah. So that that's kind of the goal behind that test dog is to show is this a fair test for this level and here to you handlers is what this will look like if you're watching dogs run or you're going to run your dog yeah yeah so so we talk pass and fail so what constitutes a pass basically just if the dog get, makes all those marks without being handled mm -hmm. uh, other than the blind retrieve mm -hmm. that's going to be a pass well and then you got, or is there more than one series in a in a in an event? You'll have two series typically. Okay. You'll have that setup we've discussed okay. on land, and yep. then you'll have a uh, similar one on water. And they'd have to a dog would have to pass both of those in order to pass to receive a pass at that Correct. test. Correct. And so generally, you have different faults. Like we're talking about, if we have to handle on a mark yeah. on land, we can't handle on another mark the rest of the day. Okay. Yeah. Um, and if you have kind of a messy blind and they carry you to the next series, you know that next blind has to be pretty clean. So second series, you're not going to have as many dogs as you did in the first series. They're generally. welcome to come back for HRC. You're okay. able to, you know, you paid your entry. They'll let you come back and run that second series. Just but for basically for practice purposes or training yeah, purposes. For, for your sake, if, yeah. you, if you made the trip out there, you can run it again. Yeah. Um, they'll just ask you to run last. Okay. Uh, a lot of people will generally, if the wheels fell off and I failed one series, me running my dog without any training tools on them and without really able, being able to to go through certain training processes, it's going to almost be uh, counterproductive for me to do it. So you'll notice a lot of handlers won't opt to run their dog again, even out of contention. Yeah. So uh, so we've covered that. What are a couple? Yeah, I mentioned. Uh, hmm. Not even. Uh... Yeah, the three different levels started. We mentioned started, but yep. then there's also, and you meant you talked about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's an easier test. Two marks, I think, is what you yep. said. Two singles. So then there's also an intermediate or a middle like season, season mm -hmm. and then there's a finish. Talk yep. about the seasoned and the finish. The differences there. So those three levels with seasoned, those birds aren't going to come out as singles. They'll come out in what you call a double. So okay. one bird's thrown, next bird's thrown, then you send your dog. Okay. Uh, and then that's where the blind comes into play at first for, for hunt tests. Okay. So that's where you see your first blind is in season. Okay. That's also where you see your first diversion. And you also see what would be called a walk up or a walk out. Okay. And that's just, you're walking with your dog at heel. You've got a shotgun. And while you're walking, they just fling one. Yeah. And your dog has to show steadiness not to break and go get it yeah. until you send them. And so that's you'd see that at the season level. And then when you get up to the finish level, and we're talking rudimentary, but or, or a basic differences. Yeah. When you get to the finish level, then you're seeing a triple where it's one, two, three, then you send your dog. And each one will have slightly more difficult factors or slightly right. different positioning in those birds in slightly further distances and they build sure. on each other. And then you get up to the grand level and the grand level is kind of the, the pinnacle of, of dog work. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting stuff. I just uh, can't wait to go see another one. I just loved the, I loved it. Uh, watching those dogs work.
Alan, we both had Daltra Pathfinder 2s now for a little while. What do you think about yours? I'm liking mine. One of the things I had the opportunity to now download a map of an area where I did not have service, and I've used it there, and it has worked flawlessly. I love it. Yeah, I love the crystal clear maps. I love that I never lose reception on my dog's collars anymore. Highly recommended by me as well. Dogtra Pathfinder 2, the official GPS collar of UKC. So we've talked about a lot of the different levels of, of retriever work and training and, and the types of dogs, the aspects that go into it. Now, that's my background. That's what I run in on the weekend. But I have very little knowledge of what coonhound night hunts are. I've never seen one in person. Um, I've been to some of our bigger events, but you know, right where cast calls end is about the end of, of a night hunt that I've seen. Yeah. So I've got quite a few questions as far as the coonhound program and what judges are looking for. And it's funny, we, in retriever work, we're talking about casts as us giving directions. And in coonhound work, you have your own type of cast, which is vastly different. And so kind of walk me through how do they even set things up before you even go to the field? As far as like a night or a night hunt, like a competition? Yes. Well, for one, every, we, our cast, you mentioned the word cast, you know, we, we, uh, the term cast in our world means that we have a cast or a pack of dogs. So a cast of dogs typically are drawn out into four dogs in one cast okay, or one pack. That's what we call a cast. So it's actually those four dogs that are going to be competing against each other. But you asked about where do they go and how do you set it up? Well, each one of those casts that you have, um, you know, obviously the total number of dog entries that you have is going to determine how many total casts you have. Mm -hmm. And a bigger event is obviously going to have the more dogs, more casts. You got to get these dogs out and they don't all compete on the same site as what you would with your retrievers. If uh, you have all the, the, we have a host club that's putting on the event and one of their uh, jobs is responsibilities is to what get what we call a guide. No matter, it's no different than a fishing guide or anything else. Somebody mm -hmm. who knows where to go to find the game. In this case, it's somebody that hunts. And if I'm a guide, uh, guiding one of these casts, I may have a dog in this cast or I may be a non-hunting guide, but then I simply take my cast to where I have permission to hunt. Okay. And it would be the same places I hunt during the week when I'm not at a competition. All right. That I have permission from farmers. Most of it is, a lot of it is, the it depends on what part of the country you're in, but uh, a lot of our competitions are actually conducted on private land. Hmm. Now, there's some WMAs that, that folks use, you know, but uh, a lot of it is done on private land. And I'm assuming that for coon hounds and raccoons, you, yeah. it's a lot of wooded lots, It is. Right? It is a lot of wooded lots, you know, and here in the, depends on the, the part of the country you're at, but here in northern Indiana, southern Michigan, you know, we have a lot of cornfields, a lot of agriculture, you know, and coons are feeding on, uh, on corn feed, corn, you know, and obviously acorns too, you know, but there's mm. a, uh, for, uh, folks that wouldn't know, uh, if, if you're a farmer and you have seen, especially here in the North part of the country, and you see some of these fields along a, a cornfield alongside of a woods about August or so, you'll start seeing rows and rows of corn stalks that are, uh, that are, uh, trampled down. Mm -hmm. flattened down and a lot of times that is uh that's in you'll see that in areas where they have a lot of raccoons really they will tear those corn stalks down they'll hmm. tear them down to eat the corn okay yeah 
That's interesting. I would, if I saw that, I'd probably assume it was just like deer were stepping yeah, on and rushing no, by. Yeah, that's, no, that's raccoons tearing those stalks off. Mm. Yeah. So, but it's amazing how, 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 much, how much damage they can do. Oftentimes you'll see, you know, rows and rows of it along, alongside the woods, cornfield alongside the woods. So you mentioned you have a guy that takes them out to where they know game is. Yeah. Um, is there is that guy a judge or is there a separate? It person? can be. So each one of those casts also has a judge, and and oftentimes in our events we have what we call hunting judges, which mm-hmm. is obviously a dog or a guy that also ha- a judge that also has a dog in the competition. Then there's also events where they use non-hunting judges where that person doesn't have any. So we have a couple different sets of rules. One that pertains to an event where you're using hunting judges to where. Um, you know, if, if I'm a hunting judge, uh, you don't agree with a call that I'm making, there's a procedure in place where we can all uh, have an opinion on, on how it should be scored. And often majority is, you know, or it takes majority to, uh, to overrule the judge. But you do have a say in it, even as just a handler, you do have a say in it. Whereas in a cast with a non-hunting judge, mm-hmm. that individual makes all the decisions and you know, the handler doesn't have any say in it. But for uh, for a lot of sports like that, for uh, folks that aren't, they have a hard time wrapping their head around how I can be a judge and have a dog in the competition myself. But it actually works quite well. Hmm. Yeah, it's they've really over the years they've they've uh, figured out the rule or figured out rules that really help make that work. That is, and actually you kind of have a say in what's going on, you know. And and sometimes we always say, <laughs> you know. Uh, it, there's nothing better than having a very, very good non-hunting judge that knows the rules very well. Uh, but they're, they're no, you know, they're humans as well. Sometimes, you know, they're forced to make uh, difficult decisions and maybe it's something that not everybody's going to, might not be a popular decision. They have mm. to make the decision based on their opinion. Um, but we always say that it's, 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 there's nothing better than having a very good qualified non-hunting judge. There's also nothing worse than having one that's not very qualified. Because then I don't have any say in it at all to help correct something that I feel is not scored correctly. Is there a certain criteria for judges? Like for a hunt test, you know, a judge has to be someone who has earned a pass with their own dog in the level they want to judge. Well, and and that's a great question. And, and not really, other than clubs are very good about only using experienced, knowledgeable judges. And that that simply requires experience for the most part. It's, we always say one thing, it's one thing to read the rule book, know the rules, but then the second is to go out there and apply them to the scenarios that you have in the field. And then that just takes experience. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, yeah. So, you know, and some guys don't, you know, some guys, uh, don't like to judge, you know, don't like being put in a position to where they have to make those calls. And, and really it, it almost takes, as a handler, it almost takes away from you a little bit. If I'm, if I'm the judge on the cast, uh, or if I'm not a judge, all I got to pay attention to is my dog. I'm just listening for my dog. I'm tuned into my dog. You know, for one thing, this is happening at night. Everything mm-hmm. I'm doing here is I'm, I've, my dog is out and I'm not seeing it. I'm listening for it. I'm listening for its voice. And I may, I may be in, and I'm in a cast of dogs where, or with a, three other dogs. I may have never heard these dogs before in my life. Hmm. They may kind of sound like my dog or they may sound totally different, but if I've done my homework as a trainer or a handler, I know exactly every bark my dog makes, and I know when it's him opening up every time. Okay. So as far as those judges, what 
what aspects or what criteria are they judging a coonhound on? So there's a there's a scoring system. So I mentioned the four dogs in a cast. So there's what we call uh, strike points. A strike is when we've cut the dogs loose, and the when a dog opens on track, we call that a strike. So there's there's strike points available. There's four strike positions. One is the first one is 100, 75, 50, and 25. Hmm. So the first dog to strike that is also called by me. Uh, if I if I take the first strike, I, I'm hunting Joe, and I hear Joe open up. I say strike Joe. The judge is going to put me down for whatever strike position is available at that time when my dog struck okay. or when I called it struck. But now as a handler, you know, there's uh, a different thing where handling comes in. Um, there, there's obviously there's rules in place to where you have to strike your dog on or before the third bark, or there's another rule where you have a one-minute grace period after you recast or cast a dog, meaning turning it loose, mm-hmm. uh, to where you don't have to strike your dog until that minute is up. But sometimes you have, like, especially in the first turn loose of the night, maybe you might have some dogs at what we call babble a little bit. They're just excited, you know, they're ready to go and turn them loose with strange dogs. You kind of line all four of them up and turn them loose when the judge tells you to cut them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of them are a little excited. You've got them on the leads here and, you know, they're, they're so you don't have to strike them on, on that. Okay. They do have a one minute grace period every time there. But uh, one of the things where the handler and the dog really comes into play, number one is very important that I know my dog well, every bark he makes. So there's different types of tracks they're going to run into out there. Might be one where a raccoon just went through their five minutes. We might call that a red hot track. And my dog's probably going to sound differently the way he opens on it or the way he runs it. It depends on the dog. I'm going to learn all these things as a handler Mm -hmm. just from hunting my dog, how he barks on this type of track versus a track where it may be an hour or older where Mm -hmm. the raccoon came through, maybe a lot older than that. So I can know what type of track he's running. And, you know, if I know it's an older track or whatever, I'm going to be pretty careful and not uh, be calling my dog too soon as far as, uh, you know, first, I want to make sure my dog can handle it. And there, you're going to see some differences in dogs that some dogs just will open on a track uh, that they can smell, where there's other dogs that can also smell it that it might be uh, so old that they don't even open, hmm. as in bark on it. You know, so you, that's how you learn your dogs. Is it generally like a, a volume thing, like a dog with not more ne- confidence? Not necessarily. Louder, it's it's just little things, and it's it can be anything, really, but you learn that from hunting these dogs long. Okay. So in other words, it would be hard for me, really, really hard for me to take your dog that I have never heard in a competition and go, you asked me to be a handle your dog. It would almost not work. Really? Yeah. For one thing, there's also rules in place. If I call, like if I mentioned, if my dog opens up, I say, strike Joe. If, if I strike Joe and it was, in fact, your dog, if it's determined it was not Joe and it was your dog, I get that strike point demerited, those oh. point positions. So I also don't want to make boo-boos out here you know so uh, you know there's merit and demerit points so there you have that strike uh strike positions there then the next uh, set of stri- uh, points is tree points and that is also for uh, there's four sets of tree points so there's 125 for first 75 50 and 25 so uh obviously the dog that trees first is going to have 125 tree points and uh, second dog is going to take 75, 15, 25. So if my dog trees, 
And there's another bark that we call a locate, where oftentimes when a dog is barking up, it has a different bark than it does in most dogs. It has a different bark than it does on a track bark, so to say, or so to speak. Hmm. So there, there again, that's something I learned from handling a dog that I would not know if you just gave me your dog and said, here, handle this dog in this night hunt tonight that I've never hunted with. I, would, I have no idea what your dog sounds like. I need to know. And as far as like you're talking about that scratch and figuring out who got first, second, third. Yeah. How, how do you know it? Like with the tree, okay, that makes sense. There's a raccoon in a tree somewhere. We can, you know, ideally walk up to it and know if there's a raccoon, whose dog it was that yeah. treated. But as far as the track, how, how, how do you determine if you have two dogs that sound similar, which one it was that, that bayed on, on track? Usually that's where the, that's the other thing I was going to mention a little bit ago when you asked, when I said the judge is almost at a, at a disadvantage when I'm judging, because I, if I'm, if I'm not judging, all I'm worrying about is listening for my dog. I don't have to worry about your dog or your dog or this guy's dog. But if I am the judge, yeah, I am, I'm trying to call my own dog. Plus I need to, as soon as, as I, uh, as I hear all the dogs, my first thing that I'm going to try to do as a judge is try to learn each of the other dogs barks. Hmm. In other words, when you strike your dog, I'm going to say, okay, that dog, you know, okay, I got him. I know what your dog sounds like, but then these next two dogs that open, they sound very similar maybe, but whenever one of them opens up, I might ask uh, Kyle, I say, Hey Kyle, tell me when your dog opens up. The only reason I'm doing that is so I know what you're figure out as soon as I can what those other dogs also sound like. So in case that comes up, what you asked about, if somebody says, hey, you struck my dog, you know, so in a non-hunting judge situation, I have to make that call myself. Mm-hmm. But if in a hunting judge situation, if that comes up, I, if I have to make a decision, somebody questions that, hey, he called my dog, then I have to either, I have to say something, you know, and then, uh, or I have to make that ruling. And then if there's any question on it, then, uh, then the voting process takes place, you know. You know, in other words, uh, a majority could overturn my call. Yeah. So, and really, most guys are pretty good about that. But that's also, that's also. You mentioned pro handlers in re, in the HRC versus amateurs, and we have, we have them from a beginner level of handling all the way up to very very experienced. But that's going to be the difference between those uh, the. Uh, entry level handlers coming into uh, up uh, versus a what we would consider a pro handler. A pro handler is just not going to make those mistakes on calling his dog. Hmm. He's he's not going to be calling your dog for one, uh, you know, because that those there's a lot of points here, and sometimes uh, those you know you're giving away points or taking demerit points. You're taking away from your dog. You may have the best dog in the cast that night. But if you, if you do a bad job of calling your dog and giving your dog minus points that he didn't earn, um, then you're not helping yourself at all. And that's just the differences between the good handlers and the not so good. And I can tell you from experience, when I first started, uh, you're in there. You're one, the, one of the, the, the easiest things I remember to do was where you take minus points is treeing your, calling your dog treed too soon. I mentioned mm. a lot of them have a locate. Yeah, You know, you want to get that first tree if you can, but here's, you know, so we mentioned the three points. So the whole basic scoring system is uh, once the first dog is treed, the judge will start a clock. It's called a three minute clock that the dog has to hold that tree for three minutes before we go in 
unless all the dogs are already treed. So once we go in, the three minutes is up now, we go in and handle whatever dogs are at this tree. And then if we shine the tree, everybody has the lights that look like the minor lights or whatever, mm -hmm. old mining lights. And we shine this tree, and there's a, there's a period of, uh, of eight minutes that we have to search the tree. And it's during this shining time that we can score the tree, or we have to see the game. Okay. And then, so if we find the game, now we're going to be able to plus up our strike position or our tree position points and our strike position points for whatever we had. Okay. So that's why, you know, obviously if you have first strike and first tree, that's a total of 225 points. Mm -hmm. So that dog is going to get the most, if, but it could be the dog that had last strike could also have first tree, could be in any, any position. Do um, do those dogs work cooperatively? Any well, or is, that's a good question. And some they're they're kind of naturally pack hounds, so naturally they will do that. But in today's world, we see a lot more independent dogs that work independent from each other a lot more than we did in the old days. Okay. Uh, but so we see a lot of dogs just making what we call their own trees, and uh, but yeah. So uh, but going back to this uh, scoring it. Uh, if, if we find that there's absolutely no game in this tree, we're also going to get demerit points in the strike positions and tree positions that we got. Mm. So just because I have the bigger part of the points, you know, to gain here, I also have the biggest part to lose if I don't have the game. Okay. So that's also where a handler is going to come in based on knowing his dog's bark. Cause if I have a dog that I know when he barks this way on this, on his locate, that sounds like this, or he's just. Uh, he's unsure that it's here, that's where I may also hold off and I may just let your dog go ahead and you take the tree on this. And where I take, a, even though my dog might've been there first, I don't mm -hmm. have to call him first. I'm going to get whatever position when I do call him. But there's, so there's a little bit of handler strategy there sometimes. Okay. You know, just knowing his dog that well. So how far are these dogs working from you while... While they're hunting, are you are it, like within a hundred yards? Oh, uh, it all depends. Miles away? It, no, it all depends. Most of them are under a mile, but it all depends, obviously, on how far out they find their track and how far it goes. So, in in different parts of the country, you'll see raccoons that probably go a lot further than other places. But the other part that plays a part in that is how much pressure the dogs put on the raccoon. If the dog, if the raccoon is still on the ground, running. Uh, if they, if they can get away from the dogs and they don't feel a whole lot of pressure, they might just kind of run and run and run for a while before they go up a tree. But a dog that is going to put a bunch of pressure on them and has a lot of speed on track and can, what we call really drive this track, uh, that coons, raccoon's probably going to grab a tree pretty quickly. Okay. So you can to say how far this, this can be anywhere from 40 yards in front of you to, you know, half the three quarter mile. So I guess if you hear a dog on, on tree at, you know, close to a mile, how's that work from, you know, you mentioned the eight minutes or three minutes or, or the different timing there yeah. between what you call, how much of that's transit time to get to that tree? Does well, that start well, the clock at all? You no. Know, well, you have, let's say you have a dog that's in there half a mile, for instance, it's called treed and it's a half a mile away. Yeah. The three minute clock is the rules are such that you try to be at the tree with when the tree is closed, meaning at the end of the three minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the case of a half mile, there's no way we're going to be there in three minutes, but that's just all part of hunting time. There's a, usually most hunts have a set time, whether it's going to be 60, 90 or 120 minutes, whatever mm -hmm. is advertised for that event. So, uh, but part of that walking is just going to be part of our hunt time. 
Okay. So whether it's, you know, so it doesn't matter. Obviously, dogs that tree close, not going to take as much. Uh, we're going to get there and be able to turn loose quicker, get, get this tree scored, turn loose quicker, and have a chance at getting a bigger score than we are of if we have to walk a long distance. Dogs, we're going to use up a lot of hunt time walking versus not. Is there a way to get like multiple first, like if there's, you know, you, you get the, the different positions for your, your strike points. Yeah. Is there a way to get a second first? Like if you find out all these dogs took the same track, ended up at the same tree, are you going to restart that, that scorecard or is everyone's hunt just over after okay. all those boxes? The only time there's only one set of strike points, a set of strike points would be the four positions, 175, 15, 25. So let's say I have a dog that is, uh, uh, is is struck in and is only one dog trees on a tree. No other dog honors him on this on this tree. So we go in and score this one dog, and uh, we recast him after we score it. There's just one set of strike points. So when I recast him again, and he opens again, he's going to take whatever strike position is available at this time that has not been scored yet. So he I can't strike in above a position that is being held. Okay. So oftentimes that's just going to be 25. Now the difference is, let's say all four of them uh, treed together uh, and and all strike positions are now scored after we score this tree. Mm-hmm. Now they all open up again. Okay. So but you a can... dog cannot be struck in over a position that is currently held out there. Gotcha. And so... a dog holds it until it is also scored on tree. Okay. So there can be the opportunity to earn a first strike multiple times in a night a hunt. yeah absolutely absolutely okay yeah. what um as far as how these dogs are hunting and and those different positions like how how much mileage are those dogs putting on in a night oh that's a good question you know we used to never really i don't think we used to think about that so much until the advent of tracking collars and telemetry systems where we now can see exactly how far our dogs went and how many miles an hour and things like that that they run typically and you'd be surprised the differences in dogs you know but uh, you know beagles sometimes you might be surprised how much how many miles a beagle can put on in a day i do a lot of running in the up of michigan uh, running snowshoe hair and it's really not nothing to put 20 miles on a dog in the matter of five six hours of running up there Hmm. whereas so but we're talking coonhounds here it's you know, it, it depends. In a night hunt, it really depends. But generally, oftentimes they're working within the same square miles section, so to speak. So oftentimes, you know, maybe three or four or five miles in that time at most. Okay. Probably not as far as you would think. You know, because oftentimes, too, it really, it really depends. It can be anything, but it really depends on... A dog that goes a half a mile, you know, it might have just went in there half a mile, might have worked five-eighths of a mile to get to this point, but then we're using up a whole lot of our hunt time getting to the dog. So technically at the end of the night, he doesn't even have that many miles on, log that many miles. You know, it just really depends. Okay. And as far as you, you're talking about tracking and telemetry and, you know, if you have a dog that that is locate barking is that a constant locate bark to you get there or if if it's just you know for a short burst or something how do you find that tree are you using these trackers while you guys are hunting or no you can use in ukc we do allow the use of uh telemetry systems but for tracking purposes only 
you know, a lot of it, some of them have the training features on them. You can't use a collar like that in a competition anyways. But so a dog, there's also a rule where a dog, once it is declared treed is what we call it. So if my dog trees, I got to say, hey, Joe treed. And then the judge is going to record it on the scorecard. He's going to start his three-minute clock. But if Joe shuts up for at any time, the judge is going to start what we call the two-minute clock. And if my dog hushes up for a grand total of two minutes, he's going to receive those tree points minus. He's going to be considered as having left that tree. Okay. So to answer your question, uh, the dog has to bark within those two minutes. Because as soon as the dog quits barking, we're headed to the dog. Mm -hmm. uh, towards the dog, when he quits barking, if I'm judging, I'm holding my cast up here and tell him I got the two minute clock running on Joe, you know, so we're not going any there anywhere until Joe starts barking again. So the answer is, yeah, he has to bark till we get there and handle him Okay. and handle him is put a leash on him. You have to tie him up while you score the tree. Okay. Yeah. And so you wouldn't really use a tracking collar to go to him. You, you, you know, he has to bark by rule. He has to be barking. So we're just going to go to the barking dog. So it's all just like, especially you're, you know, you're yeah. walking these woods at night. It's all, you're listening yeah. to everything. You don't see really yeah. anything. And going you on. will, we have what we call a dog getting out of pocket. You know, a dog that goes so far, he can't even, he, he goes out, runs his, his mouth, so to speak. You can't even hear the dog. Well, you can't even judge a dog. You can't use your tracking system in UKC to call a dog. Matter of fact, you can even see on your tracking system, they have the, have treeing switches and things like that, you know, showing that the dog's treed. Hmm. But if I can't hear the dog or the judge cannot hear the dog, uh, he's not going to accept a tree call either. Hmm. Yeah. So a dog can get far enough, what we would call out of pocket potentially, you know, about, and, and I might not be able to get him treed. Okay. But that's not, that's really not desirable in a, in a competition dog. You, you want one that hunts where you put them in. Gotcha. As far as, uh, you know, you said you have eight minutes to all collectively hunt this tree, right? To, to, to search look. the tree? Yeah. Yeah. What happens if there isn't one? Do you lose those tree points again? Uh, if, or are you demerited them? Or? You demerited them if there's no, you mean if there's no raccoon, if mm -hmm. you don't find a raccoon? Yeah. So there's three different ways you can score. One is plus points if you see the raccoon within those eight minutes. Mm -hmm. All the dogs that are declared treat on this are going to get their strike and tree position points plused. So okay. in other words, merited, uh, the, the next set or the next scenario would be where if, uh, like this time of the year, when there's a lot of leaves on, or they may be on what we call a den tree, a, a, a tree that has a big old hole in it where the raccoons will live in those holes or dens in a tree and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, where the coon could be inside the den or, or the tree may be so big that we, or maybe so leafy, we just cannot shine every part of the tree. In that case, we would circle those strike and tree points, and those points will not count for or against the dog unless it comes to maybe uh, tiebreaker situations at the end of the hunt where we might have to use those, uh, those uh, circled points to break a tie. Uh, and then the third scenario would be, heaven forbid, there is absolutely nothing there that we would find it and see it if there was. In that case, that's when they're going to get minus points or demerit points. Okay. So... You know, we're talking about these different strike points. What what happens if no raccoons are treed at all, or no no tracks are even hit in a in one hunt? You know th that happens sometimes. You know, it's a competition. Sometimes you have good nights. Sometimes you have bad nights. You know, moon phases, weather, a lot of things play a part in 
whether you're going to be successful or not. It's no different than just like your retriever trials that we were talking about, the retriever test, hunt tests, and things are simulated uh, just like a regular, like a, a duck hunt. Mm-hmm. The same is true here for whether we're uh, night hunting on coonhounds for raccoon or or beagles for uh, hunting pursuing rabbits. It's very much simulated uh, like a like a regular event. So that said, you know sometimes you, if you're just out hunting with your dog, some nights you might be a lot more successful than other nights. But it's it's the same thing in a night hunt. Mm-hmm. You know, the weather can like I said, weather could be a factor, or uh, conditions could be a factor, or um, for whatever reason, you know, so some nights are definitely a lot better than others, whether it's because of conditions or otherwise. So what happens if you don't get any, uh, sometimes you just don't have a good, uh, a good night in a competition and you don't score any game. And oftentimes if you don't do that, you're just not going to have a winner in that cast. Okay. So you talk about a cast winner is yeah. when you have all these you know, each dog's earning a point regardless of yep. what cast they're in or mm-hmm. what pack they're hunting in. Is is it dog against every dog entered or just dog against that cast? So that's a good question. So you mentioned we had four dogs in a cast. So they are competing against each other. These four dogs are. And then uh, for the most, most events are set up to where we now have one of these dogs is going to be named a winner. After, at the end of regulation, we're going to add up our points, take our minus points from our plus points. That's going to be each dog's total score for the, for the test or for the night hunt in this case. Mm-hmm. And then we have one winner. Uh, now, I mentioned circle points. Let's say we have two dogs that are, have an exact same score. Now is when we're going to go to circle points to, to break that tie there. Okay. That's where those would come into play. But at the end of the night, we have one cast winner. Now, in most cases, those that dog is now going to go back to headquarters. And if they place dogs in the event, that dog's score would be placed against other cast winners' score. So obviously, the okay. highest scoring dog is going to place first, second, third, fourth, go on down the line. So it's not that, you know, say I got 400 points in my cast, one of my, the next highest is 200 points that we're all competing against the other dogs that got first and second. It's just the winner of each the cast, winner of each points cast goes yeah. against the other ones. Exactly. Those defeated dogs in a cast, they're not going to place at this event. Okay. So what, what does a dog get? Is it pass? Is it, is it, what does a dog get for for winning its cast, does that go towards any sort of title or it, any sort of ribbons or it anything does, like that? It does. In UKC, we have three different uh, levels of uh, in, in in their towards their degree. We have the open class, which is for open registered dogs that don't have any titles. And in most cases, most events, open registered dogs hunt against only hunt against other open registered dogs in the event. Mm-hmm. So if I go to an event, I have a, a just a registered dog doesn't have any titles. I'm going to go into the uh, into the uh, group of those other dogs that are there that night that also don't have titles, and that's the pool that I'm going to be drawn uh, or draw out with. Okay. Uh, now the middle title or the middle uh, class is what we call night champions. Mm-hmm. Those are dogs that have earned a champion degree. They're going to compete against, in some cases, uh, a champions only, but in most cases now in UKC, champions and grand champions are going to compete together. Okay. So two separate classes for the most part. Now there's several events where those three categories. So we have open registered dog, a dog with no titles. We have a dog that's a champion or a night champion, and then we also have the uh, ultimate, the upper league is the grand night champion. So uh, generally we have for the most part there's two classes at a regular event: open registered 
and the knights and the grand knights hunt together. But oh. then there's a couple of events like Autumn Oaks are a big, one of our biggest major events. Uh, some of the breed day uh, events throughout the year, they separate all three of them. Okay. But most of the time it's two classes, open registered and champions, whether they're knights or grand knights. Okay. And so you, we have those cast wins. What happens if you win the overall hunt? What if what happens if you earn a placement in an overall hunt? It, de- it depends on the type of event it is. But for most of the just regular events, what we call the local club, where there we have a lot of local clubs that just have, and most of those events are just kind of the, the participants they get are those that are the competitors in that general area, so to speak. Then we have kind of middle of the road events where people will travel to more kind of intermediate type of events. And then we have what we call our major events where you'll see people come from all over the country to compete at, at those events. So it depends on the events. So most of the local clubs are probably, you're just going to kind of compete. You're competing there to earn your dog's titles for the most part. Mm-hmm. They don't often don't do, they might have a plaque. You might get a plaque for winning first place in the division or first, second or third or something like that. But whereas in the major events, they'll have a pretty nice prize package. Okay. And as you know, working at United Kennel Club, you've heard about some of those. You know, some of them are way out there. Tournament of Champions is Mm -hmm. our biggest at United Kennel Club. You know, Autumn Oaks is another big one where that's just mostly prizes there, but a pretty significant prize package, you know, or several thousand dollars worth, you know. But then like our Tournament of Champions, uh, $250,000 total purse there where the overall winner of that event gets $50,000. So it's from basically from a ribbon type of event that we offer all the way up to, you know, our tournament of champions type. Okay. So I guess the only thing that counts towards titles is winning your cast. It is. And we, it used to be set up for years and years. uh, It was set up for you win your cast and the amount of points you get championship points is based on where you place within your division. But that's not true anymore. We've changed. UKC has changed that to now. Where if you get a cast win, uh, everything's based on cast wins alone. Okay. And it kind of works, really, because there are places I mentioned, you know, if I'm a guide, I go to places where I hunt at. If you're a guide at the same club, you're going to guide where you have permission to hunt at. And I may have a lot better places to hunt than you, mm-hmm. and the chances of me scoring greater or bigger than you is pretty great, and therefore whoever wins my cast is probably going to place in the event above yours. So this cast win type format for championship points actually works pretty well. Okay. You're technically only competing against the dogs you're actually competing. Okay. So I'm assuming there's some sort of, you know, you get a point value or something for winning a cast and those points build towards your champion title. Well, it, it's number of cast wins actually. So it's okay. very simple. So it requires five to become a champion. You got to have five cast wins okay. to become a champion. Once you're a champion, now you're competing against grands for the most part, but now it requires eight cast wins. Okay. And then we also, UKC also has uh, what we call multiplier titles. Mm-hmm. So you have eight, once you have eight champion wins, you're going to be a grand knight champion. And then we're going to keep a record of the rest of your cast wins even after you're a grand knight. So you, you accumulate eight more cast wins, you're going to become a grand knight champion too. Okay. Eight more after that is going to be a Grand Knight Champion 3 and so on. Okay. And you can actually get all the way up to Hall of Fame status in UKC. All right. And that's a grand total of 50 cast wins, and it's they don't have very many dogs acquiring that. That's a, that's a dog that is probably 
going to be five, six, seven years old. And not just that, uh, he's won pretty consistently throughout his whole life. Okay. Yeah, that's a little bit different with, with retrievers because, yeah. you know, there's multipliers on grand, but each each level kind of has their own point value. You get five points for a pass and started. It takes 20 points to earn a title. Yeah. Yeah. But if you want to go on to season, only 10 of those points actually carry over to right. a season, yeah. and it requires 40 yeah. points for a season title. And then so on and so forth. And and each level kind of has their own point right. value for a pass. Yeah. But when when you talk about like these coon hounds, the champions going up against grand champions, is that does it make it harder for these champions to become grand champions since they're competing against dogs that were already competitive enough to get there? Probably so. You know, that that class, the upper class of champions and grands can be pretty and be pretty tough. You know, I think in today's world, as compared to 30, 40 years ago, I think today we just have more, probably more better dogs. Uh and uh there there's a lot of good hounds out there. So, you know, so winning your cast against uh against in in that champion division whether it's whether you're a champion or you're a grand that's pretty can be pretty tough i always said you know in events like autumn oaks where they separate the grands from the champions uh you might see uh guys bring out their grand knights that haven't been hunting them a whole lot and i used to always think that if you had a good if you had a grand knight uh competing in a grand knight class only was sometimes easier to win than a champion division, night champion division. The reason my my thought process was like that, that oftentimes the only time these guys are bringing their grands back out is for an event like this, whereas the night champions are the ones that are being hunted night in and night out during the week and then on a on the weekend, you know, versus the grand knights. So, um, it all depends. But today we see a lot more grand knights competing because of events that UKC has like the tournament of champions and gives them more reason to be out uh, qualifying for those type of events. So we see a lot more grand knights out competing than we used to. Okay. There's, so there's a lot, yeah, a lot of. So this might be a bit of a broad question, but like with retrievers, we have to break everything down into these little steps and work on each individual thing. We're working mm-hmm. on blinds or we're working on marks or we're doing each thing individually. How do you train a coonhound? Well, it's, it's, it's probably different, but the, the number one thing is probably expose it for one, you know, and I'm sure you have it in retrievers too. You probably have what we call freaks, you know, that are just, you know, I'll just have, are crazy good at a young age. You see this and, and trying to hone this dog, you know, we, we see that a lot, you know, and then we'll also see dogs that what we call might be slow starters, you know, you see some that are starting at typically around six, seven, eight months old when they start maybe running their first tracks and things like that. And then uh, some of them just won't tree right away, maybe just kind of track oriented for a while, whereas other others pick it up very quickly. And then you'll have other dogs that really don't get into that till maybe they're closer to two years old. Hmm. And now some guys, you know, tend to, it depends on the on the owners and the trainers, you know, there's different philosophies out there. You know, some guys think if they don't have something that's really doing something by the time they're 14 months old, um, they're not going to hang on to a dog like that very long. Whereas I can tell you from experience, one of my best hounds I've ever had really did not really put it all together until he was almost two years old. Hmm. And that dog was still my yardstick today. 
you know, so there's, it, it's kind of, it, it varies, you know, and then, uh, yeah. So yeah. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing in training is, yeah, oftentimes there's different ways of training a coon hound. You know, one is, is, uh, is with scent, laying scent drags. Another one is what they call putting, uh, like a putting game or a raccoon in a roll cage or something like that. And, and others are just simply where they don't even show them any game, just hunt them with dogs, let them run along, you know, and, and we do that a lot of times, you know, where you're hunting just out what we call pleasure hunting, whether it's training or just out hunting to be hunting, mm-hmm. we might have a pup or two that's running along and it may be, it may be four or five, six nights or may, it might be two months where this pup didn't even bark. And most of the time it's been around our minutes time around our feet or not far from us or within our light range or whatever. And all of a sudden one night, uh, it's like, Whoa, what's that dog? And it's that puppy barking over there, you know? So you never know, but the biggest thing is just to take them out and expose them is the biggest thing. Okay. So it's not quite as much just working independently with that pup, you know, so mm -hmm. much as you might see in that you would work with a retriever. Now, you mentioned certain things like that dog has to bark for three minutes and can't be silent for two. Is there certain things that you work on in training to, to keep a dog barking the whole time? And not, not really. There's not, we don't, we don't really have anything for that, or there's not anything that, uh, that you guys do to keep their dog barking or to probably easier to make a dog quit barking than it is to make it bark, mm-hmm. you know, but there's, that's not really, there's not really any training tactics or any reason for that. Most dogs, if they're, most dogs, if they're, if they're going to tree or, or what have you, that two minute thing is not, dogs don't tree like that. The most dogs will continuously be barking. You mentioned a while ago about uh, a locate, uh, the difference between a locate and a tree. And I don't think I, usually the locate for most dogs sounds different. Uh, There's different dogs that have like a, I don't know, some have like a long ball locate, which is more of a. You know, you got to imagine a dog being smelling on the ground or whatever, working a track and comes to a tree. They're going to put their paws up on a tree and not be looking up, you know. And so sometimes when they're barking up, you know, the scent's going up the tree. They might be, oh, more like that. And then, and that would be called a ball, you know, just a, a dog that, oh, oh, that's considered a ball. Whereas, a, oh, 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 we call that a chop mark or a chop mm-hmm. mouth dog. So oftentimes you'll have a dog that will locate with a ball mouth and then turn it over to a chop. Okay. So that oftentimes a handler, if I, and again, I just got to know my dog. Sometimes they don't have much of a changeover between that and treeing. Uh, and then others have what I used to have a dog that I really loved, had what we called a triple chop locate. He would do a yow, 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 you know, so that would be when he did that triple uh, Kyle over here is laughing at me about that, <laughs> but that's not, that's not a, that's a kind of a common locate for dogs to do that. Okay. And you know, here's another thing I will tell you about that is so interesting. We talk about amazing dogs and, and sometimes you have to be out there with your dog to see things. And if you, you have to see it to believe it sometimes, but the same dog that had the triple chop locate I'm talking about. So one night I'm standing there and here comes a raccoon running through the woods right at me. I can hear him rustling through the leaves. Now, remember this is nighttime. So obviously I hear something coming, turn my light on. There's a raccoon. It runs up this tree. My dog's on track at this time. And he comes trails up through there in no time. He's up there. And when before, and I'm, now I'm right there. I'm seeing my dog 
right there. I know what tree the raccoon went up. And what amazed me that night, he's already looking up aw, 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 when he's like 10 feet away from that tree. Hmm. And I'm like, holy cow, if I had not seen that any other time, I would think my dog's actually up on the tree before he does that. But he could already, he already had his head up in the air. He could smell that scent up the tree before he got to the tree. That's pretty neat. It is pretty neat. You know, and there's dogs that have that, you know, just have the difference in dogs that have that ability. You know, sometimes I think we really underestimate what dogs can do. And I saw that just watching retrievers, you know, if you don't, you know, just to see what they can actually do or just like this, you have to respect a dog like that. Yeah. I, and not just that, you know, sometimes we talk about, you talk about, you know, in beagles, sometimes it depends a little bit on beagles. Um, sometimes you wanted to have them close to the line, you know, and things like that, you know, where they basically have put the track between their legs, so to speak, and run the track like that nose to the ground in uh, coon hounds, you know, a dog that is going to have its nose down and just uh, on the ground, you know, it is not going to be nearly as quick as a dog that has the ability to lift its head up in what we call drifting tracks. Mm -hmm. It might not even have to be right on the track. The track can be off to the side a little bit, and they can just kind of drift this thing. And I mentioned hare hunting in the UP with my beagles. You know, you don't mm -hmm. want a dog that is, you know, you want to have a dog that has is able to lift its head and... Uh, be able to scent, you know, with its head up and drift a little more. So, you know, there's the, you know, dogs have, there's a whole, a big variety of, uh, uh, you know, of what a dog can do, you know, or what, uh, you know, how they, how they do it, I guess, so to speak. And I guess in training, you know, a lot of this, the dog's so far away from you, you don't know what they're doing. They're out in the darkness and you're just having to kind of trust them to, yep. to figure everything out. Mm -hmm. But is there a way that you know if your dog's on a raccoon or if they're, you know, maybe running a deer? Is that a big issue with some of these dogs is running running game other than raccoons? For the most part, it's not an issue, but you will see some dogs that are, you know, a lot of the a lot of our coon hounds are for the most part are pretty gamey and most of them will run about anything that they can that will lay a track. You know, now it depends on the dog. The a lot of some there's some strains, some lines that uh, maybe aren't as what we call trashy at others as others, you know, but, uh, yeah, running off game is not going to be good in a night hunt. That's demerit points. And, and actually in most cases, that's a scratch or a disqualification. Hmm. So you don't want a dog, you know, you want to get that out of the way. So there's training techniques, you know, to get that out of a dog's, uh, get that out. <laughs> you don't want that in the arsenal, you know, that's, yeah. uh, uh, but for the most part, and you can often hear too, and there again, if you know your dog's bark, goes back to the same thing. Oftentimes when they're running the right game versus not running the right game, you will learn what they sound like, and oftentimes they don't sound the same. Hmm. A lot of dogs don't sound quite the same. You will know. There's something there that is different. How do you, as a judge, how does a judge know? A lot of times you don't. Maybe the, the best thing, the easiest thing on uh, knowing whether they're thinking the dog might be running a deer, for instance, would be just because of pure how fast it's moving. It's going to be moving quicker off most times, way faster than it would on a raccoon track. Okay. But now the the, the other one is the comparison is for uh, maybe like an opossum, which is also, also off game. Mm -hmm. Now you just got to know how a opossum acts. An opossum is not going to run very far at all. So a track that is just going to be basically a couple of ground barks and then a tree bark, uh, you know, I, and you know, sometimes, uh, that might be an opossum, mm. not always, but usually that's, 
If it is an opossum, it's usually had was going to be a, a short track and a quick tree. Okay. So those are just, you know, and there again, he might sound different on an opossum than he does on a, on a tree. And here's another thing that often opossum doesn't go very high in a tree. It'll be on one of the first limbs. So a lot of times they can actually, the dog can actually also see it. Versus so they might back off of that tree if well, they see it's not well, a raccoon or no, they stay on it? No, no, they not necessarily back off on it, but they might be just sound different because they're actually looking at it. Things okay. like that, yeah. But and there's just those differences, you know, you, you will, if you hunt a dog long enough, you will learn. And that's the difference between the good handlers and the ones that aren't, you know, that the good handling comes with knowing your dog's bark and that helps you in how you call the dog, you know, and honestly, in open register, we mentioned the two different categories when they tree off game and open register, that's actually just minus points. Versus once they get in that champion division is when it becomes a disqualification. Okay. So maybe if I know I'm thinking, doggone it, I'm pretty sure old Joe just treat him a possum right here. I'm going to hold off as long as I can and try to take last position on it, you know, and things like that. That way, maybe a little the bit dog of strategy. Comes off of yeah. the tree. Well, maybe sometimes, sometimes they might. You might know that, okay, he's, I know that's kind of his thing. He's, I'm working on him and I've got him to where he's treeing a little bit, then he'll eventually leave it. So I may know, and I may just hold off and not calling him treed and hoping he will leave it. Okay. You know, but to ask to, to, whether the judge would know this, probably not. The, the, the time when he knows that it's, uh, that he also thinks it's going to be off game is probably if they're running like a deer or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, that's a big difference from retrievers because having that understanding of that dog and knowing some of the nuances yeah. can help you yep. some. But if you tell me, and I know you're a competent trainer, and you say, hey, I trained this dog. I can't make it to this hunt this weekend. This is the level the dog's trained to. Mm -hmm. And here's its name. Here's what I send them on. You can get that dog. And if you're a good handler, you can pretty easily get that dog through that hunt test well, because see, that's you make one of, those decisions. That's one of the things I was going to ask you about that I had in my notes here is how, how does that work in retrievers uh, as far as a dog changing or switching from handler to handler? If, if you have a dog that's trained well, you're the, you're the handler, can I take him next week and I can have as, as equal success with him or is there some things that is not just not going to work for me? Theoretically, the dog should respond to the same verbal cues to so, anyone. Help. So most of those, most of those commands and things are very, very standard for a trainer. They are, but where the differences come in is that understanding of, hey, I need, I know this is going to be a really fast. If you've never seen this dog run before and it's a fast dog and you're going to run, say, a land blind, yeah, you know, as the trainer and that knowing that dog's speed, that your whistles have to be really quick. Your timing is really, really important. Whereas if you have a slower dog, maybe you let them get just a little bit out of position because you know you can give them a better cast back towards yeah. that bird. But ideally, a dog should respond to everything. Now, you might also realize that, hey, this dog might take advantage of someone new mm -hmm. and try to blow you off. And that that's its own kind of thing. But if you understand dogs in general and a dog's been trained to the same program that you're used to yeah. or a similar way you can get them to get a pass on a dog that you've never seen before yeah. yeah and sometimes you know there's dogs that are sent off to pros and they take the dog back to handle that test yeah. so they might go work with that pro a couple of times just to get a feel for yeah. making the right decisions yeah. and a feel for their dog yeah. and they go run the weekend yeah. test and the trainer just does the training with it 
Yeah, well, in this segment here, we're talking mostly about coonhounds, but in the in the previous segment, you and I were talking a whole lot about retrievers. I was asking you a whole lot of questions about that, you know, so if folks haven't listened to that part of it here, and if I go back and listen to that, uh, what you were talking about, uh, you know, retrievers and how hunt tests work and all this and that, but that's what you're talking about here. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's cool how how different dog sports there, are and i know there you know like i mentioned there's the similarities between beagle trials we didn't talk a whole lot very much at all actually about that but there's a whole lot more similarities between the rules and and things for uh beagle trials ukc beagle trials anyway and ukc night hunts coonhound night hunts as compared to your retriever tests yeah you know but uh but they're all cool do you guys have a lot of pros and in- we we don't what we we don't really call them pros so to speak uh they don't have there's very few guys out there that are just making a living uh hunting coonhounds for one unlike what you're, you see in retrievers and some of the bird dog guys where those pros have a trailer load of 5 10 15 20 dogs that they're training and working going to trials at one time uh coonhounds we're looking at only one dog and one handler for the most part if a handler is going to really get in tune with his dog, he doesn't have time to mess with more than about one dog. Hmm. Really get to know him well and then competing with that dog. So to, to call him a pro, no, a pro is just typically somebody that's just very well experienced and, and has been doing it for a while. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I definitely learned a lot about coon hounds. I well, I learned a whole lot about retrievers in that last segment and even here still as well. So hopefully, uh, so hopefully our listeners will... Uh, enjoy that too but but hey you know being a being a coonhound guy for the most part i have a couple coonhound buddies mm-hmm. uh one in ohio that was very successful in our coonhound programs that placed in the world hunts and some of our uh, dog of the year series uh just kind of quit with the coonhounds and next thing i know he is running retrievers and and i've talked to him and he's just like man alan i'm just hooked on it and i can i i can tell why because he told me he said if you if you tried it you would like it too, I think. Yeah, so, yeah, it's addicting. So absolutely it is. You know, it's no different than anything. We talked about working dogs, herding dogs, and things like that. You know, and, and I will say this really quickly, you know, be, uh, that's how, how I started first was with training a, a, a cattle dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here a couple of years ago, I'm hunting my beagles uh, in this, uh, this guy's uh, back 40 there in the woods and had a, uh, he had a long lane going on his, it's a farm and he had some horses up there and they were up at the barn when I went back and it's a long lane going back to where I was hunting at. And, uh, and I left the gate open back there. Hmm. Well, and cause I thought he had had the horses up for the night and da 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 and this and that. So, but I get done hunting, get up there. I'm seeing the horses are out in this field and they had to go through the gate that I left open. There's no fence in between the woods and this field that they're in. Now I'm like, Oh my God. So I run up to the farmer there or whatever, and he gets his boys out there, and they've got a farm dog there. And it they go back, and, and I watch them. I go back there as well. But that farm dog stayed with him right at the gate. That dog, they sicked that dog after those horses in there. He had them all rounded up in a matter of a minute. They had them all out at that. Just watching that dog, I thought, holy cow. There's a dog that will never see a competition ever that is so good at its job. Mm-hmm. watching that dog work there i was just amazed again but that's true and no matter what i love seeing dogs do what they were bred to do i think that's what we that's what we do here and what we talked about here i just I just love it doesn't really matter what type of dog it's squirrel dog coonhound retriever what it whatever good dog is a good dog that's right 
Thanks for listening to the UKC Hunting Ops podcast. Be sure to give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on new episodes.